Hello and welcome to the Stat Dose Podcast. My name is Joe Francis. And I'm Matt Young. And this is Stat Medical Topics. Hi guys, welcome to Core Medical Topics. Here we cover principal areas of clinical medicine through brief and honest discussions, drawing from our own clinical practice and our own experience. Today we're going to be talking about supraventricular tachycardias, or SVTs, as, as we'll, we'll be referring to them during the podcast, uh, just for ease of, of speech, really. And I suppose we should start by defining what we mean by SVT. Technically, an SVT is any arrhythmia that arises from higher than the bundle of his. So essentially, any arrhythmia that is from the atria. This therefore means that uh, atrial fibrillation is an SVT, which, which people often don't think of. Uh, atrial flutter is also an SVT by definition. But obviously, you've probably noticed in clinical practice, when we use the term SVT, it's quite specific to a, a narrow complex tachycardia. And typically, what we use the term synonymously, SVT, and actually what we're really meaning is an AVNRT or an AVRT. And these are two specific conditions that involve re-entry mechanisms causing a tachycardia. Joe, how do these SVTs present? Well, I guess the first thing that we really need to think about is what sort of things trigger Mm. a supraventricular tachycardia. So um, that might be something environmental, that might be a use of something. And so things that I think about um, when I'm presented with this sort of situation is... Commonly, these are young people, right? Mm. So has this person uh, consumed something that may have led to them getting and presenting with a a supraventricular tachycardia? So overconsumption of caffeine, potentially, Mm. or overconsumption of alcohol. Typically, we may see this in patients who may have used recreational drugs, particularly amphetamines, mm. um, but also in drugs that uh, that may be prescribed to them. So um, significant use of, of beta agonists, specifically beta 2 agonists like salbutamol, mm. can cause someone to flip into an SVT. And, and also um, in healthy individuals, just undertaking exercise mm. can actually, again, flip you into that SVT. So it's good to explore that within the past medical history or the history of presenting complaint as to kind of what has led to this triggering of an arrhythmia. It's good, it's good to hear exercise is bad for you. I'm quite glad that you <laughs> said that. It makes me feel better about my life. <laughs> yeah, those, those things are some of the things that we want to keep an eye out for. But of course, also thinking about um, significant family history mm. um, of arrhythmias and we all we always want to be asking that question to the patient I mean possibly this is a, a discussion for after yeah and um, that that initial management but asking about family history asking about any sudden sudden adult or, ch- or child death within the family is is really really um, important um, and may trigger you to think a little bit more about what's going on and a little bit more about referral or urgent referral to to cardiology from from there mm. So I think, yet yeah, triggers can be something just as simple as a, a consumption of, of caffeine, but actually also it could be a, a congenital trigger that's just presenting at, at this moment in time. It's know, important to keep all of that. I did note you picked up your tea at that stage. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm being prompted to put myself into an SVT <laughs> by drinking tea during this podcast. That is dedication to the cause. Yeah. I'm very impressed. <laughs> I'm on my way to atrial fibrillation with my <laughs> caffeine consumption. But anyway, moving on from my, my personal consumption of caffeine, what sort of features or, or signs and symptoms are we um, going to be seeing our patients presenting with? So typically the, the main symptom that, we'll, that patients will complain of is, is palpitations. And these are typically rapid onset, 
constant palpitations. They feel like their heart's about to explode out of their chest. It can cause other symptoms such as uh, chest discomfort, can cause shortness of breath. In older patients who go into SVT, it can cause similar sort of anginal type symptoms. And in terms of your, your observations and things, it's obviously going to give you a tachycardia. So normally a heart rate above 140 to anything between sort of 240, really. And it can cause a, a cause syncope as well. Joe, you're our, our resident ECG teacher of the, of the, of the medical school. What, uh, what do we look for on, a, on their ECG? Thank you for putting my, putting my feet to the fire. Oh, I think yeah. that's a great, yeah, great little segue to make Joe think. <laughs> so I guess what I was thinking of firstly when I when I was listening to you talk about that in terms of the heart rates mm. was how do we then differentiate especially on an ECG between something that's sinus tachycardia so does this patient have a sinus tachycardia from exercise do they have an infection do they have something that's non-SVT related mm. it's not mm. an arrhythmia it's a, it's a sinus of an origin and actually if I look at a patient's heart rate and I look at at it and it's sort of over 150 160 i'm starting to really question whether that is a physiological tachycardia and whether actually this patient's suffering from an arrhythmia so i think that's probably one of the first things that you need to have a look for on an ecg and just in your standard observations really so once you've had a look at the heart rate the next thing that you want to look at on that ecg itself is is this ecg regular or is it irregular if you've got an irregular, narrow, complex tachycardia, specifically if it's irregularly irregular, then that can differentiate quite easily between your kind of typical SVT picture with a AVNRT or AVRT and something more common like a, a fast AF, mm. so atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response. So you want to look at the regularity of that ECG. Sometimes, particularly with junctional tachycardia, so those that are within the bundle of his the P waves aren't always actually visible. And so, um, but, that, but that's also the case just purely sometimes because of the speed of the ECG, mm. uh, the speed of the heart rate rather itself. P waves aren't always visible. So something that is regular, absence of P waves, but something that is also narrow. And when I, when I say narrow, I'm looking at the QRS complex. So if that QRS complex is below 120 milliseconds or 0.12 seconds, whatever you use. Um, three, small, then three small squares. Three small squares. So we like, we like, and we like small squares as well. So if it's less than three small squares, that can really increase your probability that this is a supraventricular tachycardia and it's not something else. If you've got any signs outside of that, you really need to start thinking about other alternative diagnoses, particularly if you're getting a widening compl QRS complex, more indicative of a VT, something um, that's irregular, as we said, more indicative of AF. And these are all very important differentials to consider because your treatment algorithm for a wide complex tachycardia is very, very different from a narrow complex tachycardia. Mm, definitely. And certainly a lot of the patients, once they get a bit older or if they've had a previous MI, will have a pre-existing bundle branch block, mm. which obviously gives you a broad QRS complex. Yeah. And when you know, these patients are susceptible and they can go into to SVT, and when they do, it is often tricky diagnostically yeah. to work out is it a VT is it an SVT which arm of the ALS tachyarrhythmia algorithm are we going to go down yeah I think really uh, in that sort of setting uh, from my practice I would always look at a wide complex tachycardia and consider it as thus until proven otherwise yeah. and because it, often it is very very difficult to differentiate between an SVT with 
what we call aberrant conduction, whether that's because there's a, a left bundle branch block or something else mm. going on. So I would always consider it to be VT and play on the safe mm. side uh, until proven otherwise, until I'd probably escalated to, to a senior. Yeah, definitely. I agree. 100%. Okay, so those are the signs and symptoms, some some clinical features, and thinking about the what this may look like on the ECG. And we're going to go on to now just talk about a bit of management. Mm. So, Joe, how do we how are we going to start when we see this patient? We've done our A to B assessment. We've recognised those features that we've just discussed. We've got a weird looking ECG, a narrow complex tachycardia, which is regular. What are our next steps? I think obviously, yeah, it's really key to remind ourselves that adequate and frequent. ABCs of this patient are, are really, really crucial. Although a lot of these patients do actually manage these conditions quite well. Mm. And so you, you do have time. Time is on your side. And I think a lot of that comes from the, the fact that they're still a lot of the time getting a good cardiac output. You mm. know, each, each impulse is being conducted and you are still getting cardiac output. However, sometimes in my practice, I have seen this, you, you do get that shocked patient every now and then. A lot of the time that's due to a pre-existing condition, potentially sparking that off. But for the most, these patients are quite well, despite having such a significant tachycardia. But we do need to keep reassessing and reassessing. One of the important things that we do need to do is to attach a, attach a defibrillator. So put those pads on and you really need to communicate well with this patient. You know, all of our patients have seen Holby City <laughs> or, or, you know, Grey's Anatomy or some sort of medical program. And when those pads come out, they think that they're going to die or they think you're, they're going, that you are going to give them an exceptionally painful live electric shock. And so we need to really communicate with our patients and, and, and tell them why we're actually doing that. And really, it's so that we can adequately monitor the rhythm and adequately monitor their ECG and print out rhythm strips. Sometimes these SVTs are can spontaneously cardiovert themselves or sometimes cardiovert with, with either drugs or, or um, electric cardioversion. And we need to keep monitoring that. And at the end of the day, it is there um, mm. should, should anything go specifically wrong. So attaching defib pads, particularly relevant. And then we need to have a look um, and actually assess our patients. So in, when we're looking at the uh, advanced life support algorithm for tachyarrhythmias, it asks the practitioner to consider if there are any adverse signs. And if there are any adverse signs, then we need to strongly consider whether we DC cardiovert that patient. And so adverse signs would be things that are you're, you're essentially looking at in terms of shock. So is that patient shocked for whatever reason? Is there any pulmonary edema insinuating that there's, there's some heart failure because of that reduction in cardiac output? Is there level of consciousness reducing or is there any other signs that you're clearly concerned about? Mm. If that is the case, then yeah, we do need to strongly consider DC cardioversion, but also um, what that comes along with. So maybe getting the critical care outreach team or whatever team you have in that area, calling an anaesthetist and escalating that upwards from there. If we have diagnosed a supraventricular tachycardia and there are no adverse features requiring DC cardioversion at this point, we can consider as a first line valsalva manoeuvres. So there are several different valsalva manoeuvres um, that you can undertake, whether that is blowing against a thumb or blowing against a syringe or asking the patient to bear down, which isn't one that I commonly use within my practice. <laughs> um, but tr traditionally, I've certainly seen uh, a 20 mil syringe used. And what this involves is getting the patient to 
put their lips and, and make a, a tight seal around the end of this 20 mil syringe and blowing as hard as they can into this syringe for, for a good, as long as they can essentially, but yeah. a good five to 10 seconds, giving it a real force. A lot of the time, these Valsalva maneuvers don't work because the effort's not actually been put in or the instructions haven't been given adequately to that patient. So make sure that if we're doing a Valsalva maneuver, that we're, we're doing a proper Valsalva maneuver. And when I think about a proper Valsalva maneuver, there's actually been quite a significant study come out recently called the REVERT trial that was published in The Lancet that demonstrated that once you've undertaken your your strain exercise, whatever that may be, so 20 mil syringe and blowing into it, if you place the patient immediately into a supine position and lift the legs, increasing that venous return to the IVC, there's actually quite a significant increase or or I guess benefit to the Valsalva maneuver itself. And they uh, saw quite an increase in mechanical cardioversion of that supraventricular tachycardia. So for such a simple maneuver, it's really worth adding that to your clinical practice as a first line, not after you've done one Valsalva, but really as, as the first line. So blowing into that syringe, placing the patient into a supine position, lift the legs up. And uh, that that does uh, kind of it. a lot of people actually. It works really well, and equally, it looks quite cool. And that, <laughs> I think that's one of the key things in clinical practice is, yeah. is impressing people. Yeah. And if you can do this modified Valsalva and revert an SVT, the patients like you, the nurses go, "Oh, that's quite cool." Um, increases your kudos amongst your clinical team, which okay. is which is key. Clearly, something I need to think about more <laughs> uh, as I'm getting eye contact from Matt. <laughs> So Matt, so we've made sure the patient's safe, we've got a defib on, we're doing our ABCs or delegating that to one of our co-workers, we're considering these adverse features, we've considered DC cardioversion, we've now done a Valsalva manoeuvre, hopefully with this cool looking uh, revert <laughs> manoeuvre and, and we've sort of looked around to make sure that there are plenty of witnesses. If, <laughs> if that hasn't cardioverted us and we're still running along at 200 what what's our next step well we must get rid of some of the witnesses to start with yeah. so send send, those, <laughs> send some of that clinical team away but really we're, we're then going down the route of medication and, and attempting chemical cardioversion and our first line medication in, in svts is, is adenosine mm-hmm. um, adenosine will cause an av block and the theory is that it will cause that block for long enough that label you to to revert to a sinus rhythm. I think most of our students are aware, certainly those who have seen it used in practice, that you do need to warn the patient about a sense of impending doom. Mm. There's, there is a ventricular pause associated with this because of the AV block. And this normally lasts two to three seconds in, in practice, really. I always tell my patients to, to count backwards from 30. I don't know why 30 is a good number. Um, and you give it, you know, in a big cannula with a big flush so mm. green or gray cannula in the acf with a big sort of 20 30 you know big big saline flush just to get that medication in quickly get the patient counting down from 30 it just gives them something to focus on rather than the set you know the feeling or thought that they're going to die yeah i think that's really important as well that just to reiterate that this drug has got such a significantly short half-life yeah. that it needs to be through a white ball cannula in a good vein and you need to whack the adenosine in and then whack a good 
flush in and sometimes assist that through lifting the arm mm. to try and get it into the central circulation as quickly as possible so it can have its effect. Sometimes you don't see adenosine working and um, you know, having talked to some of my cardiology colleagues, a lot of the time that is because we're not administering it properly. Mm. And so um, it's not worth whacking in that what, what is a horrible feeling drug if it's not going to get in there quick enough. So, mm. so when you are giving that dose, just make sure that you are giving it properly. And, and just making sure that, yeah, you do communicate with your patient because they, they hate it. They do hate it. They do. Dose-wise, we, we start with 6 milligrams. Mm. If that doesn't work, we go to 12. If that 12 doesn't work, we give another 12. Adenosine is contraindicated in asthma and COPD. Most commonly, it's also contraindicated in uh, long QT and some other um, uh, cardiac arrhythmias as well. Um, sort of sick sinus syndrome, I think, is contraindicated. In have to, I would have to check that. But certainly asthma and COPD are the two most common conditions we'll see it used in. And then we have to use something like verapamil, which is well, slightly less effective, but an equally good choice. I think the key sort of safety point, though, as, as we keep going on about this ventricular pause, in theory can last a bit longer and the mm. patient can go in car- into cardiac arrest. So certainly when we're doing our simulations with our year five students, one of the key learning points that normally comes out of that is that you should have somebody who is ALS trained with you if you're going to be giving Absolutely. And that's just somebody who, who has done the ALS course. Is up to date. Is up to date. <laughs> with that as well. Yeah, with their resource guidelines. Yeah. Knows what to do if it does go wrong. And, you know, touch wood, I've, I've done it I can't remember, lots of times. And I haven't seen it go, go wrong just yet. No. But yeah. it's better, better to be safe than sorry. Mm. If adenosine is unsuccessful, then as Joe says, it's either because we haven't given it right or it's because the arrhythmia is not an SVT most of the time. It's normally something like a flutter. So it will you'll get sort of a temporary reversion. And actually adenosine is quite good at dampening down that tachycardia enough to give you the proper diagnosis on the rhythm strip. Yeah. So the cardiologists quite like that rhythm strip. Another reason to attach them to the defib, as Joe said earlier. Yeah, and I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Something to, just to go back, uh, it just kind of makes me think, when we're doing any sort of manoeuvre that we are hoping will cardiovert that supraventricular tachycardia, it is incumbent upon the practitioner that they start to print mm. a rhythm strip before <clears throat> yeah. showing yeah. that tachyarrhythmia during the maneuver and or administration of the drug and after that arrhythmia for the simple basis of it may prove that you have gotten that patient out of an SVT or at least you'll have a rhythm strip that may show you an underlying rhythm and you may see the odd flutter wave or something like that mm. that will be exceptionally helpful and diagnostic in these patients. So always print out a rhythm strip when you're doing any sort of intervention for these patients. It's extremely helpful. And if adenosine is unsuccessful, and we do see uh, refractory SVTs from time to time, then you're going to be wanting to seek that expert help from a from a cardiologist, ideally. Mm. They're probably going to go down the route of giving amiodarone or considering a DC cardioversion. Um, they might also give some beta blockers if you've highlighted that it's a, a flutter through the use of adenosine. But all in all, adenosine normally is pretty effective and pretty good job. Okay, so that's just a brief run through the management of an SVT. So Matt, after we've done our management of this patient, mm. we want to start doing some investigations, yes. don't we? Yeah. And so what sort of investigations do we want to consider in these patients? So there's there's a few things we, we need to think about. I think the first key point is actually we, we put investigations after management. Typically, we normally go sort of, you know, 
definition pathophysiology features investigations management we put mm. investigations after management of svt because it is it is a medical emergency so typically a lot of these blood tests and things will be done post resolution blood test wise we're going to want to do a full blood count we're going to want to do use and ease a bone profile magnesium and thyroid function and our typical sort of cardiac electrolytes that we're interested in are potassium calcium magnesium these three electrolytes are associated with good cardiac health so svts might necessarily be triggered by uh, deficiencies in these but they, they certainly won't be helped and if you just want to check these electrolytes to make sure there's no abnormality there which might be affecting the, the patient's cardiac function troponins is often a, a tricky question it's one of those because certainly now with the new highly sensitive troponin, an SVT will give you a raised troponin if you checked it because of, the, because of how sensitive the assay is. And typically in my practice, this isn't based on a guideline. This is what we do locally, is that troponin is, is taken if the patient has chest pain preceding the episode of SVT. So if they start with some palpitations and then a couple of minutes afterwards, then they develop that chest pain. We don't tend to worry about that because mm. that's due to the arrhythmia. Mm. But if, they have, if they've had 10, 15 minutes of chest pain and then gone into this rhythm, we need to start thinking, actually, is this something like an acute coronary syndrome that's just triggered an SVT? And there we might do a troponin. Yeah, I think that's actually really relevant when, when I think back about um, findings on the ECG as well. Mm. Because you do, you, you know, sometimes you get these patients and they are suffering from what sounds like a, a acute coronary syndrome mm. type te- chest pain. And sometimes you do see a little smidge of SD depression mm. um, in these patients, but that's usually rate-related yeah. depression. And if that's come on during or uh, just after that, that kind of period, mm. then, then I think we can watchfully wait to, to see what goes on with those patients and, and actually do a post-resolution ECG yeah. or serial ECGs and see what's going on. But it doesn't necessarily mean that there is an acute coronary syndrome underlying. And certainly I've seen that confusion in practice as well as when we do simulation that if, if there's SD depression, do we need to start thinking about ringing the cath lab and doing mm. that sort of stuff? But but yeah, for the most part, it is rate-related. Mm. And I've certainly seen aspirin being given to the patient sure. because of rate-related ischemia. Yeah. And that's probably okay. I and mean, yeah. that's, you know, that's, that's not a, an unsafe thing to do. But actually, it's all it's all related to, as Joe says, the fast heart rate. And so we're going to want to do probably two or three post-resolution ECGs. And from, from my point of view, from an emergency, emergency department discharge point of view, if the patient remains in sinus rhythm after a period of, of a couple of hours of monitoring, their post-resolution ECGs are satisfactory and their blood tests are all satisfactory as well, then we'll discharge them home with, with cardiology follow-up. In the clinic, cardiology team will be interested in doing a, an echo as an outpatient to make sure that the heart is structurally normal. SVTs can be associated with some weird and wonderful cardiomyopathies and other complex cardiac conditions, which I, I could go into because I'm very knowledgeable, but I think for, you know, for, the, for the sake of the podcast, Joe, you know, I think we should probably just not go into that. Oh, I thought that was my segment, but yeah, sure, I, 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 will equally, I will equally not go into that. Thank God. We'll Google that and then do it anyway. And ultimately, some of these patients will go on to require uh, ablation in, in the cath lab if these episodes become recurrent and they're not, not amenable to medication. So that's just a very brief run through of supraventricular tachycardias from their definition through to the management investigations and follow up. So Matt, did you have anything else to to add? No, just this week's witty sign off as ever, our new witty sign off section. I hope this podcast didn't get your heart racing too much. (laughs) That's awful. It's it's pretty bad. Thanks for listening, guys. And we'll see you. 
Well, we might not see you. You'll probably hear us. Hear you next time. Hear <laughs> you next time. Bye.